0: And we can sometimes, in, in mindfulness practice, I think especially uh, when we come into a period when we bring significantly more mindfulness to the situation, it can be sometimes at the beginning of practice, it sometimes can be midway in practice, we suddenly notice, oh my God, there is so much strong aversion. Oh my gosh, there's so much wanting. There's so much judgment. There's a lot of that. Uh, and it can be a lot. You know, I know that when I work with people around the theme of transforming the judgmental mind, and we just, as it were, say, you know, the, some of the initial practices, just be mindful when a reactive judgment is present—judgment of self or judgment of other. People notice a lot. They said some of them come back and more or less say, "Oh my God," which isn't traditional. Buddhist language, but they would say, oh my God, there are so many judgments. I'm just a judgment machine. And, and help is, is the subtext, right? And, uh, and so how, do, how many people have experienced that or maybe even experienced it this morning, right? How many people experienced noticing a little bit more by, because what this, what this Fourth Foundation is doing, much like the other three, but a little bit more here, it's saying, look here. Pay attention here. We often say that mindfulness by itself is valuable, but we need to know where to look. That's what the four foundations of mindfulness are. They're saying, look here, look there, look in these places. If we if we just said, all right, be mindful, and that's okay, bye, do your practice, actually there wouldn't be so much uh, development because it's a little too vague, and we're actually, and we're we're also saying not look anywhere, but look at these particular places. Look at mindfulness of the body. Look at feeling tone. You know, track your thoughts and emotions. And then a key theme in the fourth foundation is um, tracking where there can be some um, uh, strong attachment or aversion. And then also, I think, again, as we saw earlier, very significant for this culture, is actually tracking when the negative stuff isn't there. And we are so much, again I think it's human capacity, it's like got a got a track for the saber-tooth tiger, right? You know, it's, it's a, there's a certain way that our nervous systems are geared to focus on the negative, I think, or a threat, or some, you know, possible problem, right? And we, we also learned how to tune, tune into the positive. But this first issue, we we may actually notice a lot more, and how do we work with that? So, uh, uh, Francine and I were talking, and and it seemed valuable to bring to the group that there are a few few, uh, guidelines or a few suggestions for that situation. First of all, to know that it's normal when we look more, we'll see more. When we look for some of the difficult parts, we'll, we'll also, the other side of that, is we want to look for the positive. We'll also see more of the positive. Like, just to notice, my gosh, I'm reasonably content and peaceful right now. And to keep tuning into that, that's that's part of the answer. It's don't just look for the negative, look for also the positive. Right? That's part of the answer. Second is to know that it's normal. To know that it's fairly normal to see more and be somewhat uh, shocked by what you see. <clears throat> you know, uh, the Tibetan teacher Trungpa Rinpoche said, uh, self-knowledge is 70% bad news. <laughs> I don't know if that was the, the basis of an empirical study, but... <laughs> But it was, in any case, uh, sometimes when we look like that, we do see more. And I, I know that's very much the case when I work with people in judgments. They just notice more. It can be a little depressing and shocking initially, just to know it's a phase. You stay with it, uh, and it gets balanced out. Because it's actually seeing accurately what's there, right? It's not like you're inventing something. And then the other the other aspect is... It is helpful when we're seeing more, when we're noticing more, to balance it out with heart practices that basically hold one with compassion and with loving-kindness. And to actually, if you're... You know, that's what i like, again, to refer to the work I do with people on judgments. When, I, when people are doing that work, <clears throat> I say, if you want to go deeply in this territory, you have to have a very well-developed heart practice that kind of holds you and balances things out, and holds, holds one in the heart. Because without that, it can be a lot to look at, you know, it can be a lot to see, a lot to look at. So maybe those uh, three things, know that it's a developmental phase, uh, balance out some by tuning into the positive, and then have these other pra- these practices of just being with the beautiful, being with beautiful states is, as regular practices, and that, then you kind of know, okay, well, I'm actually seeing more of the hard stuff. I'm also actually hanging out a lot more with the beautiful states, and that that can help with balance. Any other observations or questions from the morning? Uh, Please, yeah. We'll use the mic, yeah.
1: I was extremely uh, pleased, I guess, affirmed when you made the differentiation between just plain desire, like wanting something, um, as opposed to the compulsion of from yeah. that, the attachment, compulsion, obsessive yeah. part of it. So I think for many years, I've interpreted uh, the Buddha to say desire is bad. Yeah. And um, it's only recently I started seeing this sort of a continuum of my you know my desire then i get attached then i get compulsive about it and then it's addiction <laughs> yeah and and i i think what is it is what you meant by what you said earlier this morning that uh um, it's those latter characteristics of attachment, compulsion, addiction that the Buddha was talking about, not just yeah. desire itself.
0: Yeah, yeah great, uh, great to bring that up again. That's how I interpret it. Okay. You may find some different interpretations among different teachers, you know, and some would probably tend more towards the ascetic side. But I think probably most of us here at Spirit Rock would tend to see desire is not the problem, but it's what one does with desire that can be a problem. I think that's true with any state really, uh, even something, you know, on the on the other side, something like anger. You'll sometimes hear anger seen as the problem. I don't think it's a problem, it's what one does with it that can be a problem. And so, in a similar way, uh, aversion, let's say in the form of anger, could be uh, quite valuable in certain ways. You know, could, you know, for example, from doing a lot with social service and social justice, obviously anger and aversion can uh, let one know that there's uh, injustice or let one know that there's a violation of the boundary. And, of course, what one does with it is crucial. You know, one can be incredibly reactive and get attached on, I am so right and you are so wrong and so forth. And then that can be a problem. But the... the um, the aversion or the desire, without the attachment or without much of it, can be—it's just part of life. Mm. Yeah. So that's uh, its something very interesting to explore. For I think always what's being identified as the problem is that it's that unconscious grasping, and and the uh, the beliefs that may go with it, such as the belief in the moment that only I solve only if I meet this desire I'll be happy, something like that. Or that this is really part of what I really deeply want, so it's, it's it's a kind of delusion that can be can be there.
1: So, so the the a, crit- a criteria could be then, if one is choosing to respond to either the desire or the aversion in a conscious way, as opposed to a, sort of an unconscious mm-hmm. reactive. Uncontrolled sort of way.
0: Yeah, or if the desire, yeah, if the desire is just there, yeah, without the reaction. You know, it's like, I'm hungry. I want to eat now. That's an ordinary desire yeah. that can come without a lot of attachment. You know? and Thank just you. very ordinary. Or I want to go to Spirit Rock uh, this morning. Right. Or I want to meditate. You know, sometimes in the Buddhist languages, they're actually different words that discriminate between what could be sometimes called wholesome desire and unskillful desire. They're actually different words in the in the language. We don't have that in English, you know, but, but in, in the original languages, they're actually different words that, you know, can reflect. There's a word chanda, some of you know, which can actually reflect a kind of healthy wanting, healthy desire, such as to grow or to develop or to be more awake or to be less stuck, right? That's 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 desire there are, you know and so we have to we i think we all, always want to want, look for the the uh, compulsiveness the grasping and there's a certain level of unconsciousness which goes with that so uh, very interesting area isn't it yeah okay maybe, maybe uh, two more and then we'll, then we'll go to further work with uh, the fourth foundation if
2: people could leave their hand up until i make
3: eye contact thank you So I was noticing during the walking meditation yeah. um, when I was really trying to tune into my body, um, this thing that happens sometimes when I meditate and I come back and I I feel present and all of the sudden I'm like, oh, remember your body. And then all of the sudden I feel my feet and I feel all, hear all the sounds around me and I feel all the pain in my body or comfort or whatever. And it kind of all hits like at once. Yeah. And there can be this simultaneous, like, being overwhelmed by it, all of the awareness that's come on, and like this patting on myself on the back for oh, being so aware all of the sudden of like everything in the picture. Yeah. Um. So I guess I'm just wondering into that in like the element of focus, maybe in body awareness.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so, um, yeah, interesting question. Everyone here okay? About um, a few aspects. One of them is, um, I think we probably, you probably could give your own answer to the self-congratulation part of your question, right? <laughs> right which is that uh, the technical term for that is it's extra. <laughs> and we, we want to notice that, and we can just come back to the experience. In the sense of the overwhelm, or this is just a lot. It's some of it. Again, it's uh, we get used to. Much like Francine's question, there are things that just happen developmentally, and sometimes it can feel like very intense as we're more aware. And gradually we get used to it. And just to know that, not to not to necessarily make too much about. It, just to know. It's like anything. When we go into a new kind of awareness, it can feel like a lot, or it can feel a little bit weird or unbalanced. And if we stay with it. The key there is just stay grounded, stay connected to the earth, to your body, and and be be careful about any mental commentary. Right, that, that's that's always going to be key here. maybe okay, so. One more it was Larry, right? We're giving you a workout, huh? <laughs> your other people, anyone so else wants to take, take that role? Is, very good, very good to do after lunch, right? You will be when we. Sit a little bit. You'll be there. Other people. Will be there. <laughs> okay.
1: Yeah. Thank you. This isn't a question. It's just a comment that I noticed um, in meditation. I've looked to see what hindrance might be there, but this is the first time I've looked to see which hindrances weren't there. Yeah. And when I noticed that they weren't there, that created space for self-compassion to step in and wow. created a different feeling about myself. Well, wow. in that met- in that moment,
0: yeah, yeah, um, that's that's a great observation. Anyone have some similar experience or something a little bit like that? Yeah. You know, of really of having that tuning into the absence of the hindrances, open up something a little bit new. Whatever it was, maybe not exactly Larry's experience, but something like that. Yeah, isn't that interesting? Again, it's like I think it's it's again significant because uh, again, I speak for myself. I think my conditioning was to be quite aversive, like a a problem solver. I, and sometimes I've got you know, had jobs where I got paid for solving problems, and that means I have to be on the lookout for them so I can maintain my identity. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, so very interesting. I think, I think it's, it's actually kind of a low-key but very important kind of practice, just tuning in to the positive. We, we have a version of that with, uh, some of you know, with mudita practice among the, the heart practices where we learn to tune in to our own, what's going well in our lives or what's going well in another person's life as a, as a type of heart practice, which I think has a similar, can have a similar effect that we really, you know, uh, develop the capacity to tune into the positive and not be looking so much for the problem or the negative. And it's, it's, I know for me it's been quite important as a, as a practice. Okay, let's, um, ready to continue? Okay, I'm probably gonna cover the, uh, rest of the fourth found, the f- uh, material of the fourth foundation, some of it briefly, okay? Just to, so we know the text. So let's go back to the text, and we can start the, we can start a recording now. Were you already going? Well, that's okay. And I think I wanna, uh, start with the, uh, third, a model, which is the model of the that I discussed briefly before lunch, which is the model of the six sense bases. We want to go do, be briefly with that, and then we'll go on to the uh, five aggregates. So, anyone like to read? This is a, a paragraph or section number forty under the third model, the six sense bases. Anyone like to read the first paragraph? Again, monks. And if you can have it close to your mouth, oh. you
4: again, monks, a monk dwells contemplating phenomena in phenomena in terms of the six internal and external sense bases. And how does a monk dwell contemplating phenomena in phenomena in terms of the six internal and external sense bases? Here a monk understands the eye, he understands forms. And he understands the fetter that arises dependent on both. And he also understands how the unarisen fetter arises and how the arisen fetter is abandoned and how the abandoned fetter does not arise again in the future.
0: Okay, and then second paragraph. Madison, did you, uh, sure. you want to do it?
1: He understands the ear, he understands sounds, he understands the nose, he understands odors. He understands the tongue, he understands flavors, he understands the body, he understands tactile objects, he understands the mind, he understands phenomena and he understands the fetter that arises dependent on both, And he also understands how the unarisen fetter arises and how the arisen fetter is abandoned and how the abandoned fetter does not arise again in the future.
0: Thank you. And last paragraph of this section. Um, Cecile.
5: In this way, he dwells contemplating phenomena in phenomena internally, externally, and both internally and externally. And he dwells independent, not clinging to anything in the world. That is how a monk dwells contemplating phenomena in phenomena in terms of the six internal and external sense bases.
0: Thank you. Um, So a little bit of explication. And... Uh, first of all, just it's again the language is, sounds a little technical, but it's it's pretty commonsensical. And the uh, the internal and external sense bases simply mean the internal base is like the sense organ, and the uh, external sense base is what is known by that organ. So it'd be like it'd be like it'd go in the second paragraph. The ear is the internal, and the sound is the external. That's all it means. Nothing nothing more technical than that. Or the the tongue and flavors. Or you might say the tongue and taste. You know, or the... Uh, uh, and then it goes on, the body and tactile objects, where we would say the the body uh, and then the, sen- the objects that are felt in terms of feeling. Or it could, it could also be, I think, internal sensations. And then Again, the mind is understood as the sixth sense base. And so again, the mind is the internal and what it knows is the external sense base. It's, you get it? It's, 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 not, uh, it's not really complicated in that sense. So again, the eye and forms. The eye is the internal and seeing this uh, little table, is the ex- that's the external sense base, the objects in the world. Okay. Is that, is that clear enough? So it's, it's, it's really uh, really meant just to look at, the, at, the, uh, at these different senses. And the key uh, is going to be to look at what is called a fetter. That's a little bit of a new language, right? What do you think the fetter is? Anyone want to give a, a guess as to what does that mean when it says, uh, you know, in let's say the eye looking at an object and there's a fetter that arises dependent on both, meaning what does that mean? Stop. Yeah, let's have, we can use the mic. Um, uh, Natalie. Natalie and then Emily, you had your hand up. You can go second. you um, want.
4: Say stuff or blocks or interferences.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Shall I say it again? Yeah. Um, Stuff. or Blocks. Yeah. Or interferences. Yeah. Something that's keeping you
4: from seeing through. And a
0: third time, directly. Oh,
4: right into the mic. Oh, okay. I think it has those on.
0: Yeah, that would (laughs) help. It.
4: Okay. Hello. Yeah, that makes a difference. <laughs> 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 fetters are, uh, for me, would be blocks, interferences to mm-hmm. clear seeing, mm-hmm. stuff.
0: So, so coming from the outside or from your own mind?
4: From your own mind. Yeah. yeah. So,
0: that okay, Emily? You want to add to that?
5: I don't think
2: I really understand it. I'm,
0: okay. Anyone else have a sense? Uh, Max, please.
1: See, only people I, are raising their hands. I think names fe- fetter is something that binds the thing. Like, can you hold
0: this, please? Sure. L- l- like, like this, this binds
6: bind these together.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so I think it's close to what Natalie was saying, that there's... Um, fetter is a term that's used in a number of different contexts, sometimes more uh, in a more precise way, sometimes in a less precise way. I think it's here simply being used as something which, uh, uh, in which we have some compulsion, I think, in terms, very similar to there's some kind of uh, a compulsive wanting or pushing away. I think it's very much related to, we would say, greed, hatred, or delusion, or compulsive wanting, compulsive aversion, or some delusion, that there's a fetter there, uh, that's, that's how I would interpret this. Um, there are other more technical uses of fetter, but I think it basically means when, when in, the, in the uses of my senses, does essentially the mind, or my own way of relating to both uh, my ability to see and what I see, when do I get stuck? When do I get caught? What would be an example of uh, getting caught through the eye? anyone want to give an example of that? Please. If anyone else wants to get a little workout you can take Emily's role.
4: Seeing something moving in the grass and being afraid.
0: Yeah, yeah, so you might, very good, so you might uh, notice, um, again, maybe some validity to it, but uh, we would, we would be, you know, we would. Let's say we saw something uh, with our eye, and the interpretive mechanism led us to get really scared and paralyzed. Right, that could, that could be an example. So you see, there's some interaction between the capacity of the eye to work, and then the object, and the intermediary is our own mind, our own consciousness. Okay. So what would be another example? Maybe. What be an example more in terms of something pleasant or something positive? Okay. Uh, you see, in the in, yeah, if you see in the window uh, a delicious chocolate cake, and you just notice it, and all of a sudden
5: you want it.
1: <laughs>
0: there is. There's the eye, and in, in, in eye terms of this it. model, the eye is functioning properly. It notices a cake, that's the object, that's the external yeah. sense base. The mind adds the wanting, <laughs> right, and goes off somewhere. And um, right, and that, that would be a fetter if it was, again, we go back to that distinction between uh, um, desire without attachment and desire that... Gets uh, we have a lot of attachment or compulsion with. So again, that's we need to make that discrimination. Yeah, and so you know sometimes you know I, I know in some of the cartoons I used to watch or read, uh, people when they saw something that they want wanted their the eyes would bulge out. Remember those <laughs> cartoons? You know, it was like my my father used to make a comment that you have now you have big eyes. <laughs> Did anyone else use that language, something like that? Yeah, it was probably common. But I remember remember those cartoons where, where it was like someone with the, the eyes would go out like six inches out of the sockets when there was something that one wanted, you know. Often, you know, something to eat or, you know, uh, sexual attraction. It would just be the eyes would go whoop like that. That's I think that's what's being talked about. Right, that would be the fetter. And that, that can happen in any time. So you see how... You see how this model would be worked with? We're, we're not going to give special attention to this right now, but you see how we would be invited. I invited us to do a little bit of that during the lunch to attend to when that fetter is there. Now, if you see the rest of the text, it starts bringing in that model of the four types of wise effort, the same as before. Do you see how it says, Here I'll say a practitioner understands the eye, understands forms, understands the fetter that arises dependent on both, and also understands how the unarisen fetter arises, how the arisen fetter is abandoned, and how the abandoned fetter does not arise again in the future. It's the same model that we looked at earlier, right? Just here, just applied to a different context. It's the same teaching of the four wise efforts. And you see, so it would mean that if one was... uh, looking at this over time, you would understand, oh, how did this arise? Well, it was the eye looking at this object plus the presence maybe of some greed or some past habits or so forth. We understand, again, we might for the ones that are more difficult, we might work with reflection six hours later. You know, what was that about? (laughs) Right? What was that about? We might reflect, we might think about it, we might have a sense of this was the stimulus, here was my reaction. And we would study that, try to understand it, and then much like the discussion with the hindrances, we would try to have a sense of what is a skillful response, right? What is skillful for me? If I have, again, uh, much of the, what we're talking about with the eye and an object might be there in relation to food, and we might look at, you know, look at things quite similar to how we did before. If one was doing this practice, you would uh, work with the, uh, you know, just tune in to really notice. Maybe you might spend a little bit of time just noticing how the eye and the objects work and noticing when something arises. You know, you might even, like right now, um, you know, just let your eyes gaze around the room and notice when the eye and the objects you're seeing are... Kind of neutral, and notice if something arises that might be either positive or negative. See where your see where your eye attaches. Just do this right now for thirty seconds. Like, it's really like where where does your where does your interest go? Where does is there wanting? Is there aversion? Anyone notice anything? Yeah. How many people felt that your mind went to something that you seemed to want, or there's some wanting involved? And how many people felt you, you went to some aversion? It's really, it's really, I remember, um, we once did, I once was part, I was, once did a two-year um, uh, training to be a body-based psychotherapist, you know, and we, we, um, it was the Hakomi training. Some of you know that, probably have done it. And part of our training near the beginning was to see uh, the factor of what's called uh, uh, transference and counter-transference, particularly looking at counter-transference, so, which means the reactions of the therapist to a person. And one thing we did was we just took the whole training group, and we went around the room looking at each other and seeing where was there something where one was kind of attracted and where was the opposite. And we found this pretty much the whole range of reactions with every person. I once did this as a form of Vedana practice on a retreat, where I stayed, I was in the dining hall, and I looked at every, I got there early, and I looked at every person coming into the dining hall and saw if I had any reactions. No, not necessarily based on knowing anyone. It was just like pleasant, neutral, pleasant, very pleasant, very unpleasant, unpleasant, neutral. And that's actually occurring all the time with all of us. That's interesting, isn't it? So this is related to Francine's question. When you look at this, there's a lot that gets opened up, right? And um, I think that's something we can actually study. You could do that exercise, just go and sit yourself in whatever, downtown San Rafael or Oakland or San Francisco, and just do that practice. Watch how the eye meeting a form gives you some reaction, one way or the other. Do you find that interesting? (laughs) So it's a little little bit like we're, you know, we think, oh my god, we're just at the prey of our conditioning. Um, please. Is it an advanced form of almost
1: people-watching, what you're talking about? <laughs> is this an
0: advanced oh, form yeah. of people-watching? Yeah. Um, it's a spiritually very evolved form of people-watching.
5: <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay. But do you get a sense? We, again, this is if we, had, if we had a week on this or if we were doing, you know, meeting every day and saying, okay, here's your assignment for fourth foundation practice, we would do this. I want to give you a taste of that. You get a sense just looking around how you might do that, how you might do that with the other senses. And again, what's being looked for is to see where we're stuck. You know? So you could do, you know, to see where we're stuck, and I think also to see where, um, just what's happening. You know, just what's happening with the, here it is framed a little more in terms of attention to the negative. It isn't framed in terms of attending to the fetter, right? Whereas in the previous one we looked at, we wanted to know both when the hindrances were there, but also when they're not there. So this is a little bit more focused on the on the negative. Okay. So, so do you get that sense of how we, if we were doing this in a protracted time, we would work with the something very similar to how we did with the hindrances. We would see, if I really am stuck here a lot, you know, maybe, again, food examples would be common, that I would have a way of working with it, I would look for the, for the underlying trigger, and I might have uh, re- skillful responses uh, in terms of how to be wise, you know, it's maybe like partly meaning, don't go there, don't, you know, if I have, uh, if I'm on a diet, uh, I not to go uh, and stare at the all-you-can-eat buffet at the Indian restaurant, <laughs> right. Right. That, would, that would be skillful action. <laughs> or something like that. Or maybe you could, you know, if you had just very good self-restraint, you could go to the all-you-could-eat buffet and just eat a, a, pro- a small amount and really enjoy the taste. But it's not so common. So, OK. Um, we ready? Uh, I wanted to just touch on that a little so you have a sense of that without even doing it so much. But I wanted to give a little more attention to the uh to the second model, which is that of the five aggregates. And I want to uh say a little bit more about this and then actually do a series of meditative practices and then we'll have uh, then we'll move to a walking meditation. So let's again um have a, a reading. Maybe someone who hasn't read, would you like to read the first paragraph?
5: Again, monks, a monk dwells contemplating phenomena in phenomena in terms of the five aggregates subject to clinging. And how does a monk dwell contemplating phenomena in phenomena in terms of the five aggregates affected by clinging? Here, a monk understands such is form, such its origin, such its passing away, such is feeling Such its origin, such its passing away. Such is perception, such its origin, such its passing away. Such are the volitional formations, such their origin, such their passing away. Such is consciousness, and such its origin, such its passing away.
0: Thanks. And the second paragraph in that section? Anyone like to read the second paragraph? Okay. In this way, he dwells contemplating phenomena in phenomena, internally, externally, and both internally and externally. And he dwells independent, not clinging to anything in the world, that is how a monk dwells, contemplating phenomena in phenomena in terms of the five aggregates subject to clinging. Now, these are not transparent sentences. <laughs> and and yet, I think with the, with the others, did you have the experience of them being a little bit hard to understand at first, but having, spending some time on them, it's basically fairly straightforward. Did you have that experience? Uh Some, yeah. same with this, same with all of this. And so I'll I'll try to unpack that some. This is looking at experience. Now here we're in, in terms of the senses and in terms of working with this model. This is the model called the five aggregates or the five skandhas. Uh, Literally skanda just means pile or heaps. And generally this is the model of what are the main constituents of experience. The interest here is on describing the constituents of experience without bringing in the concept of self or mind. And just to actually say, can I look at experience as a flow of one type of experience after another? Now there's a thought, now there's a body sensation, now there's a sense of pleasant or unpleasant now there's a memory now there's a body sensation that's what this model is pointing to so in that sense it's again i don't think it's too complicated it's basically saying that we can look at experience through uh, a sense of flow without bringing in the concept of self the, the idea is that when we look directly at experience we actually don't find a concept of self it's something that's kind of added on as a construction in relation to experience and so part of the point here is to really look closely at experience and see the constituents of experience and learn to see it without the necessity of saying that's my thought or that's my uh, that that's a great idea or that's Uh, That's me. It's really just kind of to be a scientist and just to stay observing the flow and then also noticing when a sense of self arises. The model of... that's the reason for this. And it's part of this middle period, the first of the five models looked at, the model of the hindrances, is trying to work with what stands in the way of being mindful. The second and the third, the one with the senses and the one with this model, of the aggregates, are, are, are guiding us to be mindful of the flow of experience and what occurs in experience. And then the fourth and fifth are particularly focused on how can we develop a freedom and awakened experience. That's the, that's the flow. So it's this movement from seeing what stands in the way of mindfulness to the highest development of mindfulness, which leads to greater wisdom and freedom. That's, that's the flow. Um, and so this model is... Um, from when, we look, when we look to how it works in meditation, it's actually fairly simple. My, my colleague, uh, Guy Armstrong, says this model is the model of the five kinds of experiential stuff that manifest. And I'll go through them. They're, the first is form. The second is uh, feeling tone, which was the same as appeared in the second foundation. The third is perception. The fourth is called volitional formations, which really means thoughts, emotions, habits, what we the more mental and emotional dimensions of experience. And then the fifth is consciousness. And it's basically saying you put all these together and this more or less describes the entirety of our experience yeah its form feeling tone uh, perception what's called volitional formations the word in the original language is sankara and it i th- i would do volitional formations is a not a term we would u- use ordinarily i would just say thoughts emotions habits tendencies so it's a little bit more than thoughts and emotions it also would be our habitual tendencies, our habits, our dispositions. And then the fifth is consciousness. And so what we're what we'll do in the exercise in a little while is we essentially look closely at experience and we try to see, oh, there was an experience of form. Oh, there was feeling tone. Oh, there's perception. Oh, there are thoughts, emotions, etc. Oh, here's consciousness. You know, we don't really, I don't think we have necessarily a discrete experience of consciousness. Consciousness is kind of there with everything that we, uh, we experience. So, let me say a little bit about each of these and then we'll do some practices. Because this is actually uh, one of the uh, models that can actually be very, very instructive to free us. Because essentially what we do is we just are mindful. And then we track when any of these five occur, in particular, when we have some quality of stuckness or not seeing them clearly, or we, um, they tend to provoke uh, reactions. So we're, we're not, that take us away from mindfulness. So the first is um, material form. And this, is, this could be Uh, our own bodies. It could be the inner sense of sensation in relation to the body. It also could be the eye meeting a tree or a chair. And so you can see there's a little bit, there's overlap on these models. These are not mutually exclusive models. Do you get that sense? They cover some similar territory, but they're each models that help us to look in a certain way. And they each have their advantages here. The aim is going to be can you just be, can I just be, with the flow of experience, seeing whatever the constituents are, almost as a naturalistic scientist, without, without uh, going anywhere with them, just saying, okay, there's form, there's this, there's that, there's that, and just tracking it, basically, over time, without saying, oh, that's a really nice form. That tree, what kind of tree is that? Is that one of the oak trees? I hope they're not sick, you know, there are problems with oak trees around here. Did you know that? Yes, I should read more on that. Yes, I'll have to go home and look it up on the internet after after this day long. Yeah, what's gonna happen after the day long? Maybe Should I go have supper? Or? So so that's not being mindful, right? That's called, there's a technical term in, in, in practice for that, that's called papancha. People know the word, anyone know the word papancha? P A P A N C A. It's usually translated as conceptual proliferation. <laughs> and what I just said was an example, please. Yes, it could be. There was a comment. Should we repeat that? No, no I was joking. <laughs> okay. It was BSing, right? Yeah, it's basically what we, you know, with each of these, what we see is can I just stay with a kind of bare attention of what's happening and when does my mind take something and proliferate? We can see how that would be, in other words, when can I just stay with form? And again, it could be I'm just with the sensations of my body and there's unpleasantness and my mind goes off somewhere or there's pleasantness and I go off somewhere or I have these thoughts. And we're really invited to see how that proliferation occurs. And increasingly, as the mind gets more quiet, we just stay with the flow at the level of these five aggregates without proliferation. That's one of the directions that meditation goes. So form is that sense of uh, um, basically what's physical you know, which we know through different sensations, sight plays a big role for most of us. You know, we see objects, we have names for them, and there's form, but it's also the inner sensations uh, of the body, could be of taste and so forth. So that's form. That's the first. So that's pretty clear. So we, we're invited to say, okay, there's just the experience. I'm just experiencing right now, I have my eyes closed, I'm experiencing physical sensations. That that's, comes under the category of form. The second is feeling tone, which we know from the second foundation of mindfulness, which is that sense of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. It's interesting how it appears again in this list, right? And it's very, it's a very, it's a very crucial one. Again, the idea, the idea actually is that pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral is happening all the time. And we can act, that's why that exercise where I said just track it for three minutes is a very interesting one to do and to really Uh, to really notice it. And it's very powerful for us. I I thought I'd... Do you want to hear a a great uh, feeling tone story? Okay. Okay, because it's... um, I heard this from uh, Guy Armstrong. And this was a true story about the power of feeling tone. Basically, the power of the pleasant unpleasant to really uh, affect us. This was a story that took place in Los Angeles. There was a 7-Eleven store in Los Angeles that had a parking lot. In the parking lot, there was a significant amount of drug dealing going on in the parking lot. The uh, owner of the 7-Eleven decided to put a loudspeaker up in the parking lot and play Montavani. I don't know, I've heard Montevani much, but it's like elevator music, and Guy told the story, he said his mother really loved Montevani, and she would play it at home. But when they put up the Montevani in the parking lot of the 7-Eleven, the drug dealers did not like it. There was a very unpleasant feeling tone for the drug dealers. I don't know that the... 7-Eleven owner was, you know, reading the Fourth Foundation of Mindfulness and making decisions based on that. But uh, in any case, in a very, very short time the drug dealers left the parking lot due to the power of feeling tone. Okay, so it's, it has tremendous, can have tremendous effects. So here for the Second Foundation we're really invited just to track that. And again, I gave some different practices, and we learned, you know, those of you who did the day-long with Sharda got a lot of practices for working with feeling tone. The one that I gave were two practices. One is just to notice when feeling tone gets strong, either pleasant or unpleasant. And then the second practice is just to take a, like three minutes and track whatever's happening. And those are, those are really interesting practices where you could do that practice like I did of uh, being in a public space, watching the people who come by, and noticing your feeling tone connected with each person. <laughs> it's very interesting. <laughs> very interesting. Um, and that's going on all the time. Again, it's like Francine's question. It's something when we notice that, oh my God, got, I'm just a feeling tone machine. It's true. Okay. The third is perception which is uh, very interesting. And again, I think the list is a little bit arbitrary. You could imagine other things being there. Perception is particularly about, it's more the quality of recognizing something based on memory. Like we recognize, you know, okay, that's a tree. You know, a kid has to learn, a young child has to learn how to recognize things and connect them with language, right? We don't necessarily... uh, perceive things without, we don't perceive things without having learned to perceive them. You know, I I remember, you know, I remember once my, I have a nephew and when he was like a a year and a half, I think I pointed out for the first time the full moon. He had never seen the full moon before. And I just pointed out and said, that's the full moon. He said, he just looked at and said, moon, (laughs) 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 you know. So I was, uh, I was socializing him. <laughs> he was learning, he was learning perception, right? He was learning this is the full moon. And we all have to do that. And it's very interesting because there is uh, a way that we are, uh, you know, we are seeing something and fitting it into memory, a framework, conceptual framework, and so forth. And we uh, perceive in different ways, you know. Different people, different cultures perceive in different ways. So one of the interesting things about perception is that there is already some interpretation there and it can very easily trigger further interpretation. You know, we perceive something uh, about a person. A person is walking with a limp and we may easily go into interpretation. We perceive that limp. So this is often a doorway to conceptual proliferation. And we can just sometimes stay at the level of perception, but just to notice that we may go beyond that. And it's very interesting. It really is... um, When we notice the perception, sometimes we can actually go beneath the level of perception with our mindfulness and notice phenomena before we recognize forms. It's quite interesting. Probably many of you have experienced this in meditation, that you can actually be with what we call a tree and sometimes be with the raw sensations without even conceptualizing tree. But here we watch the way that we go into the conceptualizations of perception and the tendencies to proliferate from that. It's very, it's quite, it's quite interesting. Um, And again, perception is not, perception is not a given. Some of you, I think there was a film called Awakenings, I think, based on an uh, Oliver Sacks story. Of working with a man named Virgil, who was blind, and at age fifty or something, he had an operation that brought back his sight. And of course, he didn't see things. He, there was no perception going on; everything was just uh, what the philosopher William James called a buzzing, booming conf- confusion. And he had to he had to have the choice of learning. He actually was terrified by sight, and he chose, on my understanding, actually to stay with his eyes closed and stay blind because, you know, it was very, it was a change in his world. But it really made the point that, you know, our ordinary perception now where we look out and see objects, people and so forth is something learned. It's not something given. And again, different cultures, different people do things differently. You know, the Eskimos, the 30 words for snow and all that. Um please.
5: It's getting stuffy in here. The room is all closed up.
1: I'm having trouble staying awake. Right? Can we open
0: some windows? Okay. So you're relating to unpleasant feeling tone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I I I wasn't sure at first whether you were you were using that example to <laughs> model mindfulness of feeling tone. So it was a how many people it was a question about it being a little stuffy could use a little more air. Yeah. Let's Well, let's do that. Do we have the air conditioning on? I don't know. Yeah. Windows Windows is so fresh. Okay, let's let's go with it. You can also uh, stand up if you want to at any given moment. Okay. So we have perception. The fourth is the volitional formations, thoughts, emotions, habits. And the fifth is consciousness, which is the way of knowing. Okay? So... traditional images, uh, form is a lump of foam carried by a river. This is a traditional image. Feeling tone, impermanent bubbles on the surface of water during rain. Perception, illusory nature of a mirage. Perception is likened to a mirage. Interesting. Volitional formations, the Essenceless nature of a plantain tree. I don't know if that's so relevant for us. <laughs> a plantain tree doesn't have any heartwood, so it's just it's just something happening without there being uh, any essence behind it. Okay. And consciousness is the deceptive for- performance of a magician. Hmm, it's interesting. Okay. So let me uh, give some guidance for practicing and. If we want to, why don't we uh, stand up for a while, and I'll give these practices. Yeah? Okay. Let me give the, I'm going to give a few practices. We'll practice together some. And at any time during the afternoon, if you want to stand up or even move around to uh, help be more aware, this is when i would have uh, meetings or something at this time it was always a time for chips and salsa <laughs> i think of it as chips and salsa at time of the afternoon okay so i want to mention four ways of practicing with the with these aggregates with this model the first is simply to tune in and notice when they come by especially when they are stronger taking our attention. So it'd be to, if we were meditating with our eyes closed and we had strong sensations in the body, we would say, okay, there's form. If we would have a strong feeling tone, unpleasant, pleasant, we would say, okay, there's, there's that. If we would experience something uh, as a perception and we would uh, maybe perceive it's warm in here, we would, we would uh, say, okay, there is a perception of that. Again, we can act in a way. Uh, or we would notice there are thoughts and emotions, we would just notice them. And consciousness, I think, is more like the backdrop. So we would just notice the experience one after another. That's one way to work with it. Um, a second way is to, note it, is to tune in to the quality of impermanence, of just watching how in our experience One thing occurs, comes to predominance in experience, another thing comes, things arise, things pass away. Noticing each of these five and noticing how they arise and pass away, be tuning into impermanence. Another way would be to notice in the flow of experience where we get stuck, where we fixate on one of them, where we don't like something, where we like it, where we grab hold or push away. In anything in the flow of experience, that would be a third way, and then another, the fourth way, would be to have a sense when, especially when the mind gets a little quiet, uh, just of kind of standing back and watching the flow of experience as if we were uh, before a river. A river was right running right in front of us, and the river was carrying these different uh, aggregates. It's like there's a form, okay, there's a feeling tone, and we'd be, in a sense, watching the flow of the river and just noticing whatever is right before us and just noticing it, letting go, opening to the next one. This would be opening to the sense of flow and experience. So these are, I think, four different ways of practicing. And I think I'll um, I'll work with this. We'll we'll have a short sitting, and I'll take us through maybe... um, Take us through maybe the first three, just briefly, okay? This, again, is a sense of how to practice with this model. And the the reason for doing this is to, again, particularly notice when we are, in a sense, um, fixing the flow of experience because of either wanting or not wanting. That's, That's basically it, and getting caught in some way. And can I come back to a sense of more of the flow of experience? So let's, if you want to sit down or if you want to uh, stay standing for a while, that's okay. You can start with being aware of the breath. We've had a lot of talking. Again, if you want to shake things out a little bit, been a lot. there's a lot of, I think almost necessarily because of this fourth foundation, it's a little more, uh, there's a little more content just to cover, to have us leave here feeling like, okay, I can read that text and know what's being said and bring that to my practice. So, uh, a little more, a little more talking than I know with some of the other foundations. So the first would be to come back to your breath and be mindful. And let's just do that in about, in about five minutes. I'll give some further instructions. So right now, just to settle and stabilize with the breath. Now, the first uh, practice is that of tracking for what, when one of these, particularly the first four of the aggregates, becomes predominant. When there's a sense of form first, again, can be sensations in the body. And if we want to, we could also experiment with opening the eyes some and noticing form through vision. Second would be when there is a strong, pleasant or unpleasant feeling tone. The third would be be when there's this kind of perception going on, when we're moving away from simply raw sense experience, there's some perception. And then the fourth we can call the thoughts and emotions. So we want to use maybe a very quiet mental label when we notice uh, one of those four occurring. Like if I'm sitting here right now, letting my mind go where it may, I notice there are sensations. That's form. I notice warmth, it's kind of pleasant. That's the feeling tone. I open my eyes a little bit, I notice a clock in front of me, there's perception. And I also notice if my mind goes anywhere with that perception. I feel sensations again. And I have the thought, what else should I talk about? That's a thought. So just tracking something like that. Again, uh, most of the attention on the experience, just let the uh, labels be very soft in the mind. And we just keep tracking like that. Now, the second practice is to stay with the tracking of form and feeling tone and perception and thoughts and emotions when they occur, but particularly tune in to how they arise and how they pass away. So, the aspect of change. So, it's to sit here Really tuning into how okay those there's arising of sensation form, and then my mind goes to something else and they pass away. Really noticing arising, really noticing passing away, continual change. And as you stay with this practice, you may be able to feel a sense of that flow of being with experience. And it's as if you are directly experiencing it, but have a sense of one thing coming after another, a little bit like you're watching the flow of experience as a river in front of you. as this impermanent flow. And now the third form of practice, similarly, tracking when there's some experience of form, feeling tone, perception, thoughts and emotions, and just tracking those. But particularly now being on the lookout for any place that you seem to uh, get stuck with the flow, where there's some fixation or some, what we would call, reactivity or suffering. And to be able to tune in like that, have your radar for that. It may not occur too much, but just stay with the flow and observe when the flow is stopped or stuck or fixed for a little while. You can be with it and can either just observe it, stay with it, or can take a skillful action maybe to keep back with the flow, to let go in some way. So, um, how was that? <laughs> how many found that uh, interesting, insightful, some, yeah. Uh, how many people were a little tired? Okay. Um, how many people were tired and still found it interesting? <laughs> Very good. So, the um, just a little bit of report back, then we'll have some walking meditation. Um, the three practices were... First, uh, being able to track according to that model of the aggregates, tracking those, especially those four aspects of form, which is really anything of a physical nature that could be experienced internally with the senses or externally with sight and so forth. Uh, Secondly, feeling tone. Thirdly, perception. And fourthly, what I'm calling thoughts and emotions, the volitional formations. And if you're doing that at home, I would recommend maybe having the mind be fairly quiet so you can uh, uh, have some degree of subtleness of mind. Uh, But can you see how this more active type of practice actually brings energy? You know, like you're bringing actively saying, "Okay, let me track this, let me track that how many people could feel th- some further energy. So it kind of could could help a little bit with uh, uh, following. I would recommend have some degree of stability to do these practices. And the second practice was just tracking impermanence, which is very interesting just to really watch. Oh, there's the arising, there's the passing, the arising, the passing. And when the mind gets quiet, it sometimes can happen almost like, like a... Uh, a bunch of sparkling stars in the night sky, like one thing happening after another very quickly sometimes when the mind is quiet. And then the third type of practice was using the same categories, but looking out for where the mind gets a little bit stuck. So these are all trainings to help us to be more with the flow of experience without getting so... uh, and seeing where we sort of... um, fix the flow or the flow stops. You know, it could be the stop because, hey, that just happened. Pay attention. That's important for me. And then we start talking and so forth. So any questions or particularly observations, uh, please? And let's say our names, too. I'm Stephanie.
6: Yeah, Um, yeah, that was very, uh, very interesting to watch. Um, uh, One thing that uh i tracked during it was i have a little stomach ache after lunch and um noticed the, the sensation of it no, a little closer oh yeah hand. sorry noticed the sense i had a stomach ache after yeah. lunch and i noticed the sensation of it the yeah. form um and then the feeling tone unpleasant um, mm-hmm. and then um, the perception the naming of oh stomach ache this stomach like, ache, right? Pe- you know perception naming of it yeah, yeah. um and then um it was amazing how much papancha came from that. How much mental proliferation, just yeah. like uh, like oh well, what am I going to eat later? What caused this? Going through what I what did I eat yesterday? Um, just on and on and on. And um, what I thought was really interesting about that was the way in which um, the length of time that I was responding to that like brief moment of, um, sensation at the beginning mm-hmm. was so long that I can really see how I could spend a significant amount of my life, um, mentally respond or reacting to problems that actually aren't even there anymore. Like I wasn't even feeling the stomach ache the whole time that I was <laughs> thinking that, um, uh, or, or, you know, like, uh, maybe, we experience something unpleasant that somebody says or does. Yeah. And then the ways that our mind takes it, um, yeah. when the actual situation is long gone. Yeah. Um, so so I I thought that was interesting. Um and then I had a question. Uh, first of all, that, that's oh, yeah. really
0: interesting. Yeah. I think how many could relate, had some experience of something like that? And yeah, well you have there's so much that's valuable in what you said. Yeah. Yeah.
6: Yeah, it's really yeah that was um very useful to see that um so when i've encountered the five aggregates in the past and i've worked with them uh the one place that i'm always or like when i've been talking about it with with other people the one that i'm a little confused by is consciousness yeah and how to describe that and is that simply the knowing of what's happening so um as opposed to being unconscious and lost in the experience of it
0: uh yes um Strictly speaking, it's really the, the knowing of something. So in a way, it's um, it's not the same as mindfulness. Uh, it's a different word, but mm-hmm. it's the it's the knowing uh, the knowing quality of uh, you know even the the knowing of uh, a sensation or the knowing of those sensations that you call stomach ache. Mm-hmm. There's consciousness there. Yeah, and that's why I, you know, I also see it a little different from the other four. Yeah, that it's not really something that we necessarily uh, directly experience, because it's the basis for the knowing quality of experience. I mean, there there are, um, practices that one can do where we we move consciousness from uh, background to foreground, but I think generally the way I understand this and the reason that I was just saying, look at those fours. is that consciousness is the background more. Mm, it's the right. knowing quality for everything that is going on. Now, like I say, there are practices where we can shift and try to, in a sense, be aware of awareness. You know, we can do that. And there, and it can be very, very interesting. It's a little more complex and a little more advanced to do that.
5: Yeah. Okay. Thanks.
0: Thank you. So. Yeah, I just want to highlight all, all of what you were saying, just noticing a lot, of, a lot of what we're doing here is really just studying, using this framework to study experience, exactly to have those kind of insights. Oh my gosh, here's what my mind does. Oh my gosh, that lasted for three seconds. And here I was getting totally preoccupied about my stomach ache. But at that point, I'm not feeling anything. It's just, you know, I mean, it's, it's very interesting, right? Or, you know, to w- watch how the mind proliferates yeah um, did you have something to add Emily? okay and then we have someone in the back also yeah.
2: I just wanted to offer I had a nice I think useful insight about desire yeah when I was able to identify desire common to multiple objects
0: yeah
2: it simultaneously actually also became more wholesome strangely first, it became less of a siren call because it was my response to many things that I want. So therefore, the thing got divested of Mm -hmm. true magnetism Mm
0: -hmm.
2: because it's my always there Mm -hmm. when I want something. Mm -hmm. So I don't actually need to fetishize what I'm wanting because it's my wanting. Mm I thought that was... So it a, big sounds, <laughs> if like a big one I felt like a big Make
0: sure I understand what you're saying. Yeah. It's that sense of um just tuning into the wanting so that it almost like when you tune into that it almost is a little separated from the object. And, exactly. And, and you really and you really can just feel oh this is what desire is. Here's the wanting.
2: I guess is that simple. Yes.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and that uh uh and, yeah, and that, that kind of practice can say you know can can sometimes uh, uh, take away you know the, some overly attached way of relating to the object. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, is all of this is just basically these are all little excuses for looking carefully at experience, which we don't do very much, <laughs> right? And saying, oh, look at that. Just keep. That's what mindfulness is, it's really... And these are all little frameworks to help us see really different things, Yeah. so at the back, please.
4: I'm Julie, and I'm confused. Okay. (laughs) This is a self-help program, right? Um, I've not done this aggregate business before, but I'm having trouble distinguishing between the way in which I've practiced mindfulness to date, Which has labeling and recognizing and watching and all of these elements. Turn it on. Like this. Yes. Can you hear me now? Could you hear me before? Anyway, I'm 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 having trouble distinguishing this aggregate approach. Yeah. Uh, It seemed to me another set of labels, and I'm aside from watching arising and going away, which I think I've spent less time on before. Yeah. I'm having trouble separating those two and seeing what the aggregate approach provides that attention uh, in a mindful way doesn't. Or what's different?
0: What's different here? Um, it's a good question. What's different about the uh, this particular uh, framework? Um, it's taken to be a somewhat comprehensive Set of the main constituents of experience and so it's you know in the um, it, it, it'll ha- it may have some similarities with the way you were instructed earlier in other words, be mindful of the body, be mindful of sensations, be mindful of thoughts and you see there's a lot of overlap with this model and in, in essence you may be uh, doing something very similar, you know, if you would attend to uh, sensations, which is really the, the first of the aggregates, okay, really attend, to, um, really attend to the feeling tone, which is the second foundation of mindfulness. And you may have been doing that as well, like really a sense of the pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. Uh, perception is a little bit different. That's, that's really tuning in to, um, it's like Stephanie was saying, It gives us a little more precision for noticing what we might call the interpretive aspect of experience. You know, which you may have been doing anyway. You might have been doing, oh, here I'm with the sensation of my knee. Oh, here's my mind making those sensations a problem. It's really not any different than that. And and then with the uh, uh, quality, what I'm interpreting as the fourth, the volitional formations, it's very similar to just tracking thoughts and emotions. And then the fifth, consciousness, again, we might... I, I didn't have us trying to tune into that because it's a little more complicated. But we might, you know, if we were really doing this, we might add that piece. That's probably a piece which is different from the earlier instructions. But the first four might have been very similar to what you were doing. But what the, you know, in the, in the traditional context, this was understood as being a complete uh, uh, set of the core constituents of experience. And so, again, the way I described it, it's probably quite similar to what you've been doing, right? And the, it just, maybe the labels are a little different. So it's quite similar. And the, the net effect is of seeing, you know, we, we could also probably, without even using this model, if you were just going with your own uh, training so far, you could probably do each of those exercises that I did. You could notice it, Uh, Notice what's happening was the first one. Second one was tuning into impermanence. You may not have done that so much, but you could, right? And uh, and the third one was noticing where you get fixated on something. Again, you might have done that in the past, so not really so different. And these are just a little bit different uh, frameworks for getting at what is our, the core experience of mindfulness is to track what's there, notice impermanence, notice where we get stuck. That's basically it. And all of these are just tools to maybe say, look here, have you really looked at that? You know, and some of them help. Like I think the focus on perception here probably helped Stephanie with her working with her stomach ache, right? I imagine that focus, you might have done it without having come today, but probably this particular focus, you really tuned, oh, that's a perception, right? So there, see, there's certain advantages from doing that. Yeah, thank you. Great question. Thanks. Maybe... uh, one or two more right in front of here. Yeah. My name is Gary. Yeah. Uh, a while ago, you mentioned balancing out this practice with heart practices, oh, yeah. compassion, and so forth. And yeah. I'm wondering how, if you could talk a little bit more about that, Yeah. because I'm curious about how the experience of compassion, particularly self compassion, yeah. fits into the framework. Of what you're teaching, which is a bit more empirical and, right, yeah. and detached, and the experience of self-compassion is, you might say, brings in the object of self. What what is compassion in the framework that you're yeah. teaching? Yeah, it's a great it's a great question. Uh, what's the place of the heart practice? I'm also curious. You know, we the way we teach here. At Spirit Rock, we bring in quite a bit of loving-kindness, which we, when we teach retreats and so forth, we integrate it. And like, when I, like I said, when I work with this focus on transforming judgmental mind, we have the heart practices right there from the beginning, and it's almost like a, a basic complement to mindfulness. You know. And that's what I have found to be useful with that kind of challenging material. But in a sense, all of what we're looking at could be framed that way. It's interesting uh, that the uh, uh, four foundations of mindfulness uh, don't, to my knowledge, include a reference to that heart practice or to compassion. That's interesting. You know, why is this? I think it's a reasonable question to ask, why is that? Uh, definitely the heart practices were part, part of the full uh, curriculum. You know, and and it gets back to something that I think I was talking about just uh, uh, not with the whole group, but just with an individual. That um, it's important that mindfulness is in relationship to the other factors of the Eightfold Noble Path in the traditional sense. And uh, I was did I I talked I was talking with some I think just individually about uh, there's a Term that's in the tradition called wrong mindfulness. Was I, did I talk about it with the whole group? My memory is I was just doing it with a few individuals. There's a term called miccha sati, which translates as wrong mindfulness, which is basically mindfulness disconnected from ethics, from wisdom, from the other factors of the path. And that would be the mindfulness that, you know, a, a terrorist might have could be very mindful assembling that bomb, right? To be a good terrorist, so to speak, you need to be fairly mindful. But it's not connected, presumably, with uh, ethics and wisdom. And it's very interesting because mindfulness is entering the contemporary world very, very quickly. It's going into psychology, education, all these areas. And it's not always connected with ethics and wisdom. It's often just understood as being present with something. And and that, that you know, it's more like just this simple capacity to be aware. And that, that can be an issue. So that's uh, a little bit of background. I think of the heart practices as part of that full path. It's also interesting to me why the heart practices aren't part of the, named explicitly for the Eightfold Path. Maybe we need a 12-fold path. Uh, you know, so I think it's, I would say that, uh, uh, you know, in some parts of the tradition, the uh, sometimes in later traditions, sometimes the emphasis on wisdom and compassion is taken to be central, and that uh, one would do the heart practices right away. And again, we do that in retreats. So I think, I think that, yes, um, that a, a, a deep, Deep work with mindfulness needs the heart practices as balance. You know, it needs them in, for multiple reasons, really, including just to balance. And it's interesting. Yeah, it's interesting. Maybe, I mean, my idea is that even though it's not in the text, maybe, in a, maybe later in the day or near the end of the day, we can bring in some of those heart practices. Because I, I think, I think here it's a very important point. And that uh, maybe in doing this next year, maybe I'll, I'll, I'm going to do it next year, a series also with with Sally Armstrong. And I'm going to, I'll talk with her about this point, because I think, I think we both are very sympathetic to it. But it is clearly not in the text, right? It's interesting. Where did they originate, those heart practices? Well, the heart practices are uh, the uh, Brahma Vihara, uh, they're uh, loving-kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. And those are traditional practices that started appear... Where started well, they're in Well, they're, in the, they're just as ancient as the mindfulness practices. Same yeah, same time. I mean, we have the, the core text. I mean, if you look through the text, you'll see there's the Metta-sutta, yeah. which some we of you know. All the time. What? We, we ch- all the time. chant that. And that's, you know, that's one of the early discourses of the Buddha. It just, you know, it it just wasn't, I think, in the actual text interwoven quite so much with the mindfulness. It's there more as separate practices. I know that, for example, uh, when we teach — I'm one of the teachers for the loving-kindness retreat in January, since some of you have done that — and we have a very strong emphasis on the interrelationship of mindfulness and loving-kindness, you know, in that retreat. And I think, I think uh, I'm, you know, I'm, uh, I'm perceiving your point as quite important <laughs> to use the, to use the uh, language of the aggregates. So I'm, I'm, I'm quite responsive to that. And I think uh, cause, partly because I know that in practice, when we're actually looking carefully, it's like Francine's point, that when we actually do a lot of mindfulness practice, some of it can be a little bit troubling. You know, we can see. Oh my gosh, look at all those judgments, or look at look at what my feeling tone is doing. <laughs> That's when you need mindfulness for yourself. Uh, uh, compassion, compassion, yeah, compassion. Yeah. And so I think, you know, as one is, if one is going deeply with mindfulness, we need a lot of self-compassion. We need a lot of compassion for each other because mm-hmm. we're noticing a lot. I think it's a, again, uh, it's a great point, And thank you for that, Gary. Maybe
1: uh, last one before the walking. Thank you. I wanted to, to share an observation I had during this, the practice, the first one where you're doing noting.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, this is something I've noticed in noting which is kind of relevant to what we discussed earlier where people are describing having problems with things that are kind of a nine or 10 mm-hmm. on the scale. And what I noticed when doing noting is that things things when you're noting you're describing it things come really fast and you mm-hmm. can notice it and they come fast and then things mm-hmm. disappear really fast. And so even, you know, maybe something intense like a nine or 10 will, will come and maybe stay a little bit longer, but mm-hmm. then you notice it passing away and you kind yeah. of, it, you know, it, it loses its power over you a little bit. Yeah.
0: Yeah, so uh, what to do when things are coming more quickly? Just a comment. No, <laughs> oh, just a comment, just a noticing of that things are sometimes happening very quickly. And, um, yeah, first of all, that noticing the quickness of change can be very helpful in terms of insight because it, 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 um, it somewhat uh, uh, lets me know that a lot is going on without me controlling every moment. <laughs> right? Has anyone had that insight? <laughs> That's an important one, right? Think, oh, my gosh, look at that. I don't have to... I don't have to help my experience along quite as much as I thought, right? And it's actually occurring kind of on its own. That's something we discover, especially when we do retreats or really when the mind gets quiet and things are happening very quickly. Oh, there's a sensation. Look at that. Oh, there's a thought. Oh, the thought is going into this. Oh, look at that. Look at that. And just tracking that can help one to see uh, you know, how uh, automatic a certain amount of our experience is. It's somewhat humbling, right? And it actually matches with what a lot of the neuroscientists are telling us, right? That the sense of self or free will is a little bit overblown, (laughs) right? Right? Some of you probably have read some of that work, right? Where it says, you know, uh, I think one of the well-known studies shows that on a uh, uh, neurological level, they were able to actually say... um, What the person was going to do before the choice was made consciously. That it was all set up neurologically and you could actually tell. Do you know that what I'm referring to? Some of you probably know that study. There was basically saying that the concept of choice is, is, I would say, overblown (laughs) because it was all just sort of happening and all the mechanisms that we connect with choice on a neurological level were already set in motion right even before, but yet the person has a conscious sense of, I chose that, but the sense of choice occurs actually in terms of time after, from a bodily level, a neurological level, things are already in motion. Are you following me on that? So, so, um, and also, you know, just, so that's some of what happens in meditation is that we see somewhat the sense of this automatic, somewhat conditioned flow, and it Uh, can be humbling. It can be a little bit, this is again where we want to have compassion, where the heart practices can be quite important because, you know, I I know from my own experience that going through, you know, studying this for a lot of years, there are times when I'm a little unbalanced by what I see, looking carefully at experience. We need, that's where we need community. That's where we need a teacher or teachers. That's where we need the heart practices because it's a Looking carefully at experience, we you know a lot of, you know a lot of society just operates on a more superficial level. When we actually look carefully at things, some things can be a little bit scary, troubling. Can also be incredibly beautiful. You know, again, I don't want to emphasize just the one side. Um, you know, we can we can uh, you know we can tune into the love or to the, the beauty in ways that are astounding. And, and, so, uh, and that and can sometimes happen when the mind slows down like that, when things are happening so quickly that we notice. So to stay with that, to track impermanence, can be a very, uh, very powerful experience. And at that time, yes, the, when it's happening very quickly, we don't need to struggle to label it, right? It's just happening. The labeling is a tool that's valuable at a certain point. And there are times when the mind is, very, is more quiet and things are happening more quickly, and it's too quick. It's like things are, you know, there are 10 things per second coming down the river, right? And if I was going to go, okay, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, four, It's a little bit hopeless, right? So you just, maybe you just try to see, oh, there's a really big log. <laughs> like that. So, okay, so uh, it's a good point. Okay. Um, ready for some walking meditation, be outside. So my invitation would be to uh, work with the, one of the practices that we've done in this last period. That could be, see what it's like to be outside and just be with the flow of experience. It could be that you're just working and naming the different aggregates, or it could be that you just try to just go with the flow of impermanence. Uh, the flow of things happening, and you just know, and you're just out there. You could stop. You don't have to walk necessarily. Just stop. And you notice there's a sight. There's a feeling. There's this. Just to tune in a little bit more to the, the aspect of flow, right? And, and, and notice, you know, notice when there's perception, when you're with the flow and then your mind just goes to a tree. And then and notice that aspect that uh, Stephanie was naming of proliferation. Notice at what point the mind goes to something and then gets involved with a lot of thought. See if you can track that and come back. And if you'd like to also, um, maybe I'll just say stay with one of those practices we just did. Okay? Is that that clear enough? Okay. And do it outside in the walking. And uh, I'll ring the bell. We'll come back at, um, let's say, uh, 3.55 in about... uh, See now is that I'm sorry. Let's do it 350. About a little less than a half hour. Okay.